there, Bulldogs. Welcome to Career Chat. This is Kylie, your host, an alumnus of DeSales University and a former career ambassador. I'm so excited to be hosting this podcast to help provide you with valuable information relating to career development. Prepare to hear from some amazing people as we help you explore your interests, develop your skills, and implement a plan for a fruitful career in the future. With that being said, let's get started with this week's episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Grosso, for uh, Zooming in with me today uh, to learn a little bit about racism and COVID. Thanks for having me. So if you don't mind, um, just tell me a little bit sort of about how you came to DeSales, where you started at, and you know how you got into the field that you're currently in. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess I'll, I'll go back. I'll go back to the beginning. No, um, so I started, I started my undergrad at a school kind of similar to DeSales. Actually, it was Mm -hmm. a small Christian school in San Diego and every day in San Diego is 70 degrees and sunny. Oh my goodness. I I hated it. Yeah. Wait, I (laughs) hate it too. (laughs) I don't like that. It was so boring. So I ended up doing a study abroad program on semester at sea and I lived on a ship and we went around the world. Um, And then I moved. Yeah. You say that that so nonchalantly as if it's like not the coolest thing ever. (laughs) It was, it was really cool. My next goal is to teach on it. So yeah, that's that's down the road. (gasps) Hopefully. Um, So then I did that and then I moved to Boston and that was a really effective way to get away from the sunshine. And, and yeah, (laughs) then I left, I finished, um, my undergrad degree at Suffolk university. And then I moved to Davis, California for grad school. And so Mm -hmm. I got my master's and my PhD at UC Davis in communication. And once I moved on to my dissertation work, that's when I really started to connect with health communication. Um, and I, you know, thinking back, I'm not really, I've always been very afraid of the doctor and very resistant to talking about health issues. I typically like, if you talk about having to get a vaccine, I faint. I just am like very sensitive. Yeah. So I was really interested in people like me, like why people avoid health information and how to better reach audiences that tend to not act on health information that they should. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And then it wasn't until I came to DeSales because they were starting a health comm program. So they brought me on um, to start the undergrad program in health communication. And I had also been assigned to teach gender communication. And I was like a budding feminist, Mm -hmm. but I had never taught gender communication. And so I was really spending those first couple of semesters learning alongside my students. But I started to see these intersections between health communication and gender. And I feel like where you pull one thread of marginalization, like in terms of gender, then it's like it unravels this whole tapestry of like the systemic oppression that I just cannot look away from. Um, And it sort of, you know, it feels like, oh, it took me a really long time to realize all of these types of issues. But I think I had just been so focused on what I was doing that it took me a long time to realize. So now I've really been excited about devoting a lot of my energy to better understanding disparities in health, but also general systems of oppression and seeing where those things intersect. So my apologies for a very long 
answer. No, um, but yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Wonderful. So why don't we talk a little bit? Um, I know you did a presentation for the pre-health club and we spoke about racism and COVID. And I know we could spend, I know between the two of us, we could spend hours talking about this probably. Definitely. Um, but so where did your interest come in in sort of this topic? I know that, you know, when everything sort of hit, it was one of those things where I personally feel like it shown so much light on things that unless you were really involved in the healthcare system already, or if you were already paying attention to that kind of stuff, um, it really showed light on things that other people, because it was not affecting to them, didn't realize. But I think now, particularly with COVID, it has come to light almost, even though we all know it's been around forever. Yeah. So what you said there at the end there, that it's been around forever is really, really a key point because health disparities have existed long before COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because everybody is vulnerable to COVID, there was this sense that it would be this like great equalizer, that it would put everyone at the same level of vulnerability. And that just is not the case. This was really just a way to highlight these disparities that have been in existence for a really long time. And so before jumping into that, I think it's important for anyone that's listening that maybe um, is kind of new to thinking about this. Like when we talk about disparity, we're really just talking about difference, any sort of um, significant difference between things. So when we're thinking about health disparities, we're thinking about either differences in health outcomes or differences in the way that people use healthcare systems Um based on group membership. And typically that group membership that we're talking about is based on marginalized groups. And Mm -hmm. I always tell my students, if we're thinking about something as marginalized, think about a sheet of paper. Where are the margins, right? They're on the outside. So we're thinking about groups of people that are somehow on the outside of the system, either they're treated or deemed as unimportant or um, have less power than other groups. So we can think about marginalized groups based on race or ethnicity. gender, sexual orientation, religious status, all of those things are class. Um, And when we start to look at different groups' experiences within the healthcare system, even before COVID, we can see that it's different depending on the color of your skin, the language you speak, where you were born, who you love, um, how much money your family has. And that, that has only gotten more obvious with COVID. Um, but it certainly has existed forever, sadly. Yeah. And it's it was one of those things, too, that I personally didn't grow up recognizing that stuff. It wasn't until I did. I did my first two years at Rutgers, which is one of the most diverse schools in the U.S. And I learned so much about the other experiences that were not like my own that I kind of found myself so taken aback that I did like a huge deep dive into just what else is out there. One of the first things I learned when I started getting interested in medicine was just that the mortality rate for Black women is so much higher. It blew my mind. I was like, how? How does no one notice this or do something about it? I like, mm-hmm. I had such an issue for months. I was just so, I still am so beside myself that this is something that still happens. And it's things like that. If you look at the data, the data doesn't lie. 
that I feel like that's something that sometimes people have some issues with is like the, the, the research doesn't lie. It's not like they're pulling these numbers out of nowhere. These are studies. And it just, that was one of my first experiences. And I just know that ever since then, I've been very hypercritical of the system in general. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's there again, it's like you pull one thread and you start to realize there's so many different angles that this type of problem has to be addressed from because if we what we know is that when we have racially discordant interactions between patients and providers so that there's a white provider black patient um tends to be worse off like the patient enjoys it less the conversation is less natural the treatment is typically less aggressive than it would be if it was a white patient overall health comes are health outcomes are not as good Mm -hmm. um so we think, okay, well, what do we have to do? Well, one, we have to have better training for healthcare providers, but also we have to in, invite a more diverse healthcare provider population. We have to make it a space where people are being, um, you know, accepted into medical schools and that they're being recruited into programs and they're being um, given the path to success in these types of areas. So we don't continue this issue of having a predominantly, and it's changing a little, a predominantly white male um, population of providers, Mm -hmm. particularly physicians. And we're seeing that shift. Um, But that, of course, contributes to it. And then, of course, we see like really problematic perpetuation of stereotypes and misinformation, even in textbooks. Mm-hmm. Where people that are, you know, being trained to be healthcare providers and they're getting these really, really problematic oversimplifications of, well, people who are black have higher pain tolerance, which is absolutely false. Not true. Yeah. Yeah. And so we see that those types of issues and it's really hard to figure out, okay, how do we attack it at all angles? And we see the same thing with gender, right? Of course, it's worse for black women, but even just comparisons between males and females, right? Studies show that women's pain is not taken as seriously as men's. They wait longer for pain medication. They wait longer for care. Um, They have less aggressive treatment for certain things. So yeah, those types of things are out of the patient's control, right? Their Mm -hmm. gender, their skin color. And that's when we're talking about health disparity, something that someone has not done um, as an individual that impacts their health. So I think a lot of times, and this is like the narrative in the US is that our health is a function of our choices and our behavior. Like, oh, they're so healthy because they make all these choices. But we also know that it's like biological factors as well as social factors, because Mm -hmm. the fact that I'm in a position where it's Friday. Once I'm done with the things that I'm done with, I could leave work at three if I wanted to. So I have the flexibility at work. I can go home. I live in a safe enough neighborhood where I can go for a jog, even if it's at night, right? there's street lights or there's a park nearby. All of that stuff is not within my control mm-hmm. that, you know, arguably like, yes, I got this job and all that. But if people are lower income, they're working two jobs, they can't afford um, to spend a lot of money on groceries, or they live in a food desert. Food desert is where someone lives in an urban area um, that's like more than 30% of the population lives more than a mile away from a grocery store. Mm -hmm. That means a large portion of the population is relying on calorie dense food, not nutrient dense food, right? There's going to be higher um, concentration of fast food of convenience stores. And then, so for people in food deserts, which tend to be low income areas, which tend to be um, communities of color, 
we see higher rates of obesity. We see higher rates of diabetes. And those things have existed before COVID. Mm-hmm. But then when we see this sort of put COVID on top of it, those are things that make getting COVID much worse. Yeah, These existing health disparities have exacerbated the issues with COVID as well. So like, let's talk about the flexibility for a little bit, because I know that's one of the key things in terms of COVID um, is the fact that, you know, there's all these people who may be low income, do not have babysitters, do not have people to, you know, pick up their children. They can't afford to take a day off. And now that the vaccines are starting to roll out, they're still not eligible to get them because they can't make the appointment which is just absolutely insane. You know, something's finally available, but it's not really available to everyone. Right. Yeah, that's a really good question because even even if we go back further before the vaccine piece, we think about testing and testing has gotten a lot better. But in the beginning, it was limited to people who could get a um, referral from their primary care provider, which a lot of people don't yeah. have, especially if they don't have insurance, um, or they had to go through a drive-through. Not everybody has a car. Um, then the I think of it as like the quarantine dilemma. If somebody realizes they have COVID, you know, the, the natural thing is, okay, then you have to take the two weeks off. You have to go quarantine. But what does that look like for someone who absolutely cannot take that time off from work? Or what does that mean for a multi-generational household where one person's going back to the household and do they have to like stay in a single room? Do they Mm -hmm. risk infecting the rest of their family members? And this is, these are typically decisions that are made among people that have more constraints in their financial situations. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that there's that big ethical piece of, okay, if I have to earn this money to feed my family, am I going to go to work and put other people at risk? Mm -hmm. So that, of course, brings into those other pieces about someone's location. And are they, when they get to work, to get to work, are they taking public transportation? Does that put them at higher risk of getting COVID or spreading COVID? What does their household look like? In what close proximity are they to people? But then as you brought up with the vaccine, right? I got my vaccine. I mean, I found the appointment in the middle of the day while I was at work. Nobody's mm-hmm. hovering over my shoulder like, hey, you can't go on that website. I got to sign up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found an appointment in Easton, a half hour drive for me. I hop in my car. I drive out there. I don't have to race home to kids. I don't have to race to my second job. All of that was because of the flexibility of my lifestyle. And like you said, if someone really wants an appointment, if there's one that's at 1 p.m. in the afternoon and that's in the middle of their work shift, it's not a matter for everyone of just, oh, I'll just, I'll be right back. Um, It's not that easy. And so we see these disparities in terms of vaccination rates based on race, right? And so we (laughs) see these vaccination rates based on race and we're seeing disproportionate infection rates, hospitalization rates, rates of death um, among all communities of color, except for Asian, the Asian communities tend to be on par with white folks, but um, Hispanics, Pacific Islanders, um, and African-Americans have been infected, hospitalized, and have died from COVID at higher rates. But we're not seeing proportional rates of vaccinations. We're seeing white folks being vaccinated at higher rates. And that is probably a reflection of 
having the ability to get the vaccine, having the awareness, um, having the trust in the system, right? Because at this point with a new vaccine, there has to be a sense of trusting that this isn't going to be harmful, that the research is sound, um, and having that sense of health literacy, which is mm-hmm. another thing that is related to um, some of these disparities that we're talking about as well. Yeah, I think that the thing that was so astounding to me when you said that um, at, in in the club meeting that we were at is I had no idea. I kind of knew that um, certain groups of people were not getting vaccinated at the same like percentages. But then I also didn't know that it was actually not even comparable to the amount of infections and deaths that were occurring. And that just kind of blows my mind that, you know, I feel like the healthcare system in general is kind of just failing. (laughs) And I mean, I know that there's so many things that need to be overturned, but it just seems so much against groups of people sometimes that it's just incredibly frustrating as an outsider or someone who's not in a position to, you know, do like make any radical changes within the system that it's just, it's just astound- astounding. I think it just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. I have experienced that feeling of paralysis before of looking at something that's so flawed but also something that has served me so well my whole life, which mm-hmm. feels like a really icky realization. Um, and then thinking like, where do we begin? Yeah. Where do we begin? And it feels very overwhelming. And, and oftentimes for me, coming from a position of work in health communication, for me, the approach, especially in a moment like this, when we're still really in the thick of it, right? We're kind of yeah. seeing like you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're looking at populations of people that are still not getting vaccinated at rates that we would like to see. And, and I think a lot of it could be addressed by better messaging, um, messaging that's tailored to particular groups that addresses unique concerns of particular groups or is coming from trusted people within different communities, right? Maybe mm-hmm. hearing it from Biden, you know, here's the new um, sort of, updates to the CDC regulations that if you're vaccinated and outside with other people vaccinated, you don't have to wear your mask. You know, that can be really exciting for people. But if Biden's not the person that people want to hear from, um, you know, I kind of wonder, would we see a different outcome of different groups being vaccinated if Trump had won the presidency and he was the one telling people to get vaccinated? Would that shift people's behavior? So persuasive messages, right? It it matters on the credibility of the speaker. And if people don't find the people talking and telling us to get vaccinated, well, then it's not going to be very effective. So we have to think, how do we reach the people that aren't getting vaccinated um, and convince them to do it by meeting them where they're at, whatever that might look like across different communities? 